From local to global, we bring you the best conversations with your favorite athletes and Olympians. This is the Olympics.com podcast. Welcome to our Basketball World Cup episode of the Olympics.com podcast. Tom Kirkland here along with our entire podcast team. Everybody working hard for you. We will soon introduce you to a refugee, one of nine children, eventual NBA All-Star and Olympian. But most importantly is Luel Deng's daily mantra, giving back and paying it forward. He's now laser focused on the 2023 World Cup basketball tournament. Among these special 32 teams, you'll find the newest, South Sudan. Words cannot possibly properly explain <laughs> this incredible accomplishment, making the World Cup one of five African teams in the field. The bright stars of South Sudan, the nation, did not exist 12 years ago. But this team is among the miracles evolving after years of civil war, revolution, and decimating famine. The social, political, and economic challenges have been immense, and that's where this podcast's guest comes in. It's something that speaks a lot about our people uh, looking for an opportunity to celebrate anything. And it makes me so happy now that all the South Sudanese people, even I just came from South Sudan, that everyone is excited about the World Cup. Luol Deng, born in Wow, South Sudan, one of nine children in his family. Deng's grandfather was the chief of the village, as was Deng's father, who was a wealthy landowner and provincial governor. He was minister of culture, minister of irrigation, minister of transportation, eventually deputy prime minister of Sudan before revolution and civil war tore the Deng's world apart. Aldo Deng, Luol's dad, was arrested at gunpoint, imprisoned for three months, then released on the condition that he broker peace between the Christian South and Muslim North. So Luol is a refugee as the family was fleeing for its life to Egypt, then London when he was very young. Deng learned to play basketball at an early age. The Minute Bowl, you remember that name? Yeah, the Minute Bowl connection. He moved to the USA, became a star at Duke, playing for Coach K. Then Luau was the number one draft pick, seventh overall by the Chicago Bulls in 2004. He played for five teams in all over a 15-year career, and Deng was a two-time NBA All-Star. But still, playing for Team GB in the London 2012 Olympics might just be his greatest moment. Deng baseline. Dang kept way far from the basket, forces the three. Good! Now, Deng has made it his mission to serve South Sudan, to help rebuild all levels of life there. Using his power as a basketball star, he's now the president of the South Sudan Basketball Federation. Olympics.com podcast. All right, so that paints his picture on a canvas of service and vision. So let's meet this extraordinary man who just happens to be a basketball legend in Durham, North Carolina, Chicago, but probably more importantly, in South Sudan. Welcome to the Olympics.com podcast, uh, Luol Deng. Thank you so much. Joining us from Kenya, 
Appreciate your spending a few minutes here with the podcast. Oh, definitely. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. So uh, in the big picture, the basketball in your life. Um, it took my new ball um, to come into South Sudan, I mean, to Egypt and teach my brothers how to play. And they taught me. So, you know, basketball has opened a lot of doors and just, you know, not only playing the game and loving the game, uh, but being able to be on a stage, being able to get a scholarship to go to a good high school, uh, being able to, you know, be a recognizable, known figure. Um, obviously, you know, a lot of hard work uh, went into it, but it also uh, very rewarding. Let's talk about your early life. You were still a refugee as a toddler. What do you remember? I mean, obviously a toddler, you don't remember much, but what can you tell us about that time? Uh, not much. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I know stories and sometimes right. uh, stories become part of your memory and you can't tell the difference whether do I remember this or do we just talk about it? Uh, but obviously, anytime you leave your homeland, um, you know, uh, and you become a refugee, uh, most likely you're seeking a better opportunity um, or you're running away from uh, danger. Um, you know, so uh, the memories wouldn't be so great. Uh, you know, there's some that are great, but obviously um, not, a, not, not as great as, uh, you know, staying, um, you know, definitely if they were. If everything was smooth, I, I wouldn't have been who I am today at the same time. So um, all I could say is, is, you know, we left because everything wasn't uh, things weren't easy. Uh, let's say that. I'm just wondering where fear factors in and anywhere. You know, to, to be honest, I, I don't I was too young. Um, probably I was protected um, uh, right. as any you know, child should be. Um, I didn't deal with the everyday, um, you know, surviving mode. Uh, but, you know, um, just just to, to think back, if, if, if I was to have any memories, most likely I just playing memories, uh, having fun and playing as a child. Uh, I don't remember any memories that I could say, you know, this took place and this took place. I'm, I'm sure um, my brother can explain more. I feel like I remember some people being in the streets, uh, but I, I don't know if that's you know, my memory or story. So it's, you know, but they're there, they're there. So. Right. Uh, your father, obviously a leader in Sudan, um, many uh, minister in, at many levels, deputy prime minister, but also fighting for his life in the civil war. Uh, what was that? I mean, I'm sure those stories have come on to you and um, you're immensely proud of how your father set you guys up, even, even though he was dealing with stuff. No, definitely. And part of why I was able to, you know, move to Egypt and later to the UK uh, is all because of my dad's hard work. Uh, at the end of the day, um, he worked very hard. He's uh, one of the first uh, from his uh, from our village to, to go to school and get his education and uh, get into politics and become the minister of uh, education and transportation of the whole Sudan at the time. Um, he had a lot of information that he knew the direction that the country was taken and all because of all that hard work, you know, it allowed us to, to leave the country, know what the danger and what's going on. And we weren't alone. There's, uh, you know, millions of South Sudanese who left as refugees in a lot of different countries. But I would say that, you know, because of uh, my father's position, he was able to get his whole family out. Uh, there's a lot of stories of individuals that weren't able to do that. So I'm always thankful for, 
you know, um, his hard work and everything he does, he did, and his, you know, huge sacrifice to provide a better life for his family. You know, some people could have just said, I'm a minister and stuck it out, uh, but he didn't. He chose to stick with, um, you know, what he thought was wrong, uh, believing that uh, the people of South Sudan were not being treated right, speaking his voice and, and sacrificing everything to stick to that and, um, you know, to stay with his family. One of the coolest things, uh, you wear number nine. You did wear number nine uh, throughout your great NBA career, uh, honoring your, your the nine children when you're one of, you know, you had eight brothers and sisters. Uh, what was it like being one of nine? I mean, imagine like meals must have been fun. There must have been some battles. <laughs> No, definitely. I mean, uh, my mother had nine kids. Uh, so, you know, I, I wore number two at Duke because number nine didn't exist. And uh, they don't have a number nine in college. I, I, I don't know, you know, till now there's no number nine in college. But when I got to the NBA, number nine was there. I wanted it. Um, and yeah, that's the reason. And I think it always remind me every time I played a game that you know, it's it's uh, it's something. It's something you know, uh, small to you know, uh, always bring up my mother. So every time someone asks me my number, I tell them the story of a brave woman that raised nine kids. So it, it always takes me back there, uh, and it always gives me a reason too when I'm playing to know what I'm really playing for. Raising nine, uh, what was she? A disciplinary. I mean, I guess she had to do everything. She had to be a, a teacher, had to be uh, strict sometimes, loving. Uh, how, how would you describe it? Yeah, no, my mother is very tough. She's very tough. She's very traditional. Uh, she believes in uh, order, respect. She, she, you know, she ingrained and taught us a lot of uh, how to, you know, how to carry yourself, um, how to speak to others, uh, how to be humble how to just be thankful uh, for everything that you have, um, you know, and I think till today, she's still the same way. Um, she's never, you know, for once not think about other people. Uh, she's always, she has a mind about helping others. And I think that's where a lot of, you know, from my father and my mother, a lot of the things that I do today uh, is because I've seen them do it throughout the years and that's give back to people. That's tremendous. As your talent in basketball and career developed, do you remember a time when there may have been a shift in, in your goals uh, to give back, to devote your life to lifting your homeland? I think it's always been there. I think even though I left at a young age, at home, we kept a very, we, we kept a very close, tight family. Uh, we, we, we kept the tradition and the culture uh, being, you know, South Sudanese, uh, always thinking of home always had positive thought that we're going to return home. Uh, I've never, ever been around South Sudanese uh, at the time when it was Sudan. I've never been around South Sudanese or just around, you know, uh, family members that didn't believe that one day we'll go back. So we always lived our life prepared that one day we'll go back. Um, it's not till later on that we actually, you know, around 2002, 2003, that we believed that, with John Garang's leadership that we're actually going to have our own country. Uh, at the time, you know, we kept thinking that Sudan is going to unite and come under one um, because a lot of it, a lot of it uh, didn't have to do with the interaction between the people, the Sudanese people and the South Sudanese. It was 
you know, uh, the way the government uh, of Sudan at the time was treating, you know, uh, the South Sudanese people. But the, the belief has always been there. So I think that's why I always believe in giving back and knowing that it's a lot of people that, you know, back home that need uh, everything that we're providing. Where do you think the, the selflessness, the, the mantra of serving others comes from? Because, you know, you've been so accomplished in a very difficult profession. And yet, you know, it's uh, we'll get to it later. But, you know, your, your citizenship awards and, and it just it, it just comes from some someplace else. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that, like I said, uh, we have a tight family, but we really follow our culture. Uh, South Sudanese are very close to their culture. And one of the few places uh, in the world that are still really stuck to their culture and hasn't changed much from the beginning. And not everything in culture is always good. But the one thing about culture is it gives you direction and belief. And it gives you a certain way of behavior uh, where you have to think twice uh, of what you're doing. And it's really huge in our culture, how you treat others. Uh, but it's also huge in our culture that you understand you're not one. It's all of you together, not just, you know, you and your brothers and sisters. It's actually you and your whole family. So growing up that way and seeing my father uh, help out so many people, seeing my mother help out so many people, uh, I just it became ingrained in me and I just believe that that's the way, uh, that's the way you live life. It's not just for you. So when you're giving a lot, uh, you have to share. And we do a lot of times go away from those things, uh, but at the same time, they give you a purpose and a belief of why you exist or why you have the things that you have. I'm going to break down your basketball career into segments. Earliest memories of sport might not have been basketball, but what, you know, maybe what were you doing bef when you were youngest? I was a uh, football player. I was a soccer player. Uh -huh. I'm still a big soccer player. Uh, I still play. It's my first love. Um, wow. And, and for, uh, I support the best team in the world, which is uh, Arsenal Football Club. So uh, whoever disagree, I uh, we don't have to. <laughs> that's, uh, that's totally fine with me. <laughs> I've been an Arsenal supporter since I was a kid. I remember actually uh, we were living in Egypt and I remember watching a game and I saw Arsenal play in a, in a finals. I think it was the Champions League final or uh, the UEFA final. It was one of the two. Arsenal lost by a crazy goal. Somebody kicked it from um, midfield and lobbed uh, David Seaman. Uh, but I remember that game, I was supporting Arsenal, uh, and it was because of Ian Wright. And at the time, I was in Egypt as a kid, um, not knowing that I would actually later on move to England, then move to South London, uh, right next to Sellers Park, where Crystal Palace is, where Ian Wright used to play his football and ended up playing in the same football team as Ian Wright's kids. Uh, so, uh, and then later on ended up opening a basketball and a soccer or football, uh, park, uh, with Ian Wright, uh, in South wow. London. So it, it, it was meant to happen. It was meant to happen. And I've been an Arsenal fan. My whole family has been an Arsenal fan since then. Uh, but I always tell people I, I have a, you know, a really big reason why I'm an Arsenal fan. I'm, I'm not one of those guys who just support an Arsenal because of the colors or they were winning here now. It, there's actually a deep meaning to it, and it starts with uh, Ian Wright. That's tremendous. So basketball, uh, you mentioned Egypt and then London, and, and I think it's great that, that you brought up the late Manute Bowl. And, you know, I read about the drills and drills and drills, and that was just Manute Bowl passing it on to your brothers and then passing it on to you. Yes. Um, Manute came back. So 
The story is we were in Egypt uh, and there's a church that all the community, the South Sudanese community used to meet in on the weekends, uh, sometimes maybe on a Wednesday, but most likely most people, the kids and everything, everyone comes in on the weekends. And that's when we played basketball. Uh, before Manu came, my brothers and their friends were playing, but there wasn't a lot of organization. Uh, it was just play to play from what you know. Uh, Manu came in and he was supposed to visit for a week. And I remember the whole community showing up because uh, Manu is famous um, in our community. Sure. Uh, I mean, worldwide, but especially for us South Sudanese, Manu is special. So when Manu showed up, everybody shows up. So he decided to start teaching my brothers how to play basketball. And at the time, my older brothers um, were very, very good at basketball, very skilled. So Manu actually took the time to not only train the South Sudanese kids, but spend time with my brothers because he believed that they had a chance to be, you know, very good. So he started teaching them. So my older brother decided to take those drills and took me and my friends. Uh, at the time, we were about seven years old. Uh, took me and about seven or eight of my friends and started training us, uh, drilling us and, you know, whatever he's learning. Uh, I always tell people I learned how to do a layup uh, with a uh, bag of chips on the floor and a paper towel. And the reason for that was to step my right on the bag of chips, step my left on the paper um, and and shoot. That's really where it started from, because at the time, you know, uh, basketball is not something that you just pick up uh, football is football. I can go to the park and I don't have to know what double dribble is. I don't know what travel is. I don't know what three seconds is. So with football, you just play basketball. You need, you need, um, you need coaches that know what they're doing. Right. Did he teach you about shooting the three? Cause the big guy could shoot. No, he, he could really shoot. He could really shoot. And you know, I've, I wish, you know, I wish I had more, you know, time to play with Manu because by the time Manu taught me, I mean, taught my brother's basketball, I was too young and I wasn't playing in the games. By the time I got to the NBA, Manu was already retired. So I missed out on that, but I would love to, you know, to be on a call with Manu on on his prime uh, because he was, he was special. Absolutely. And then you get the scholarship to Blair Academy in New Jersey and that leads to, uh, you know, uh, fairy tale college time at Duke with Coach K. Well, what do you remember about Blair on to 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 Duke? Blair is where when I was in uh, Brixton uh, in London before I went to Blair, uh, I had a coach by the name of Jimmy Rogers uh, yeah. and another coach by the name of Jabbar. Um, and Jimmy and Jabbar really forced me out of football. At the time, I would skip practice to go to football practices, and they just kept drilling in me uh, how good I could be. I kind of believed it, but I always had in the back of my mind, well, this is not America, so um, I'm probably good enough here, but I don't know if I'm good enough there. Um, and then by the time I was 14 and my sister had a scholarship, Blair Academy offered my sister and myself to go. Uh, and my my father was the one who really pushed it. Uh, there's a lot of people saying I was too young to go, but my father really believed that it was better for me. The earlier that I go, uh, the more opportunity that I will have to adapt to the American culture, but also to understand the game and, and the system and everything. So by the time I got to Blair, I remember uh, we had our first practice. Uh, at this time, Coach Mantegna, who's my coach at Blair, who's also an assistant coach with the national team now, uh, with the South Sudan national team. 
Uh, Coach Montagna had no idea how good I am. He just knew that there's a 14-year-old kid who's about 6'5", who is pretty good, and I'm going to have him for four years. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to get the best out of him. Maybe he gets a low division one. We don't know, but we'll take our chances. And my sister was very, very good. So it was okay for Blair to let me tag along because they really liked my sister a lot. Uh, so when I got to Blair, uh, we played one scrimmage. And I remember playing with the guys. And I realized that if this is the varsity team, uh, then I, I can actually, you know, uh, start on this varsity team as a 14-year-old. Uh, that's how I felt. After practice, uh, coach called me in his office and he sat me down and he just said that there's something I want you to know and I want you to take it very, very serious. Uh, and he's like, uh, I've coached a lot of kids and I've coached college basketball. And even though you're 14, uh, you probably could play college right now. And when he said that, that's when I really realized that I have a chance in this and then you know, he sat me down and he said, listen, this is the five schools that I think you're eventually going to be recruited by. And he mentioned the likes of Duke, North Carolina, the top schools. But he said, you probably have a chance to skip all that if you want to. And when I heard that and knowing what the NBA is, I just started working towards that. And I think uh, it's what I always tell people that uh, you'll be amazed by the things that you say to people, what they can do. Uh, and I think for me, you know, I think coach, my coach telling me that I'm that good, that I belong there, uh, inspired me even more to make sure that I prove him right. And I never let him down uh, because he believed that in me. I think it also speaks to your character and how you projected yourself as a 14 year old, because I'm sure he had dealt with a lot of kids that if he had said that, uh, they would have gone out and had an agent and, <laughs> and, and you yeah. know, turned, the, turned that on themselves and it ne might never work out. Yeah. And, you know, um, I always say this, my coach protected me, not only me, but people don't know that my roommate in high school uh, was Charlie Villanueva, yeah. who at the time was, you know, ranked fourth in the country. And and Charlie went to play in the NBA for 11 years, I believe. So coach had the top five, two of the top five kids in the country. Every school was there. Every agent tried. Our coach is, is he's, he's so special in terms of he just cared about uh, what's best for us. Uh, he didn't, you know, favor any school. He didn't, you know, uh, take anything in terms of, you know, trying to convince us to go here or there or play for this. Uh, he was just straightforward protecting us. And Blair Academy, if anyone knows Blair Academy, it's in New Jersey in the middle of nowhere um, and literally in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and, uh, you know, for people, if somebody's really trying to recruit you, uh, which Duke did in other schools, it's it's a hell of a drive. Uh, and it's a hell of a commitment. And you have to literally commit to go in there because there's nothing else next to it. It's just, you know, in, in a small town called Blairstown and the high school is the only thing that's there. And I'm sorry if anyone is from Blairstown. I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean that it's not a busy, uh, busy area. So. And then uh, tell me about the Coach K's recruitment. I don't know. Sometimes there's a lot of assistance around, you know, I, but what was special about, I mean, when you go to Duke, you go to Coach K and I'm sure that was a big part of it. Yeah. You know, the number one thing about Coach K, one is every kid in high school, uh, if they lie to you and they don't say that they get excited, 
uh, to tell people that Coach K is recruiting them, they're lying because he has the respect of everyone. Uh, obviously, he's a legend. He's known. He's part of one of the greatest uh, basketball stories, and that's where, uh, about what he did with Duke and where Duke is now. Uh, but for me, I loved Coach K because my parents loved him, uh, not liked him. They loved him. Um, and when I say that, I'll, I'll share a story with you. Uh, there was a point where I wasn't sure if I'm going to go to Duke. And I remember my coach, Coach Montagna, saying, you know, my father called him and my father told him that he doesn't care even, you know, uh, about NBA. He doesn't care about what else. He wanted me to show Coach K respect and make sure that I go to Duke because of just how Coach K made feel when he visited. Uh, Coach K flew all the way to England to sit with my parents. Uh, but the one thing that got my attention with Coach K was when he was recruiting me, he kept telling me, you're going to do a lot of great things for your country. And again, just like my high school coach, uh, he gave me something, which is which I'm doing now. He gave me something that I believed in when I heard it, that I must make it happen. Um, and, you know, and even after basketball, this is what I'm doing now. Okay, spoiler alert. Where did you, what What was the competing school to Duke, even though it never happened? <laughs> I visited, uh, I visited five schools. So right. I visited Fairfield. My brother was playing at Fairfield at the time. I visited Virginia. I visited Missouri, Indiana, and Duke. And literally in that order, it's how I visited the schools. My last visit before Duke was Indiana. Me and Charlie decided to visit Indiana together because we were entertaining the fact of high school teammates and we go to college together. Right. When we got to Indiana and I left Indiana, I remember thinking that I'm going to go to Indiana. Mm. And then my Duke visit was the last one <laughs> and kind of ruined it for all the other schools. <laughs> it turned out to be everything made sense. You know, the campus. I like the campus. I like the people that I met. Um, I liked the teammates. I liked how Coach K was running the school, uh, the managers that took me around and, you know, took me to show me the campus and took me to practice to watch and everything. None of them were really acting is really how they were, uh, because they made me feel that comfortable. But when I committed to Duke, I remember saying the basketball is great, but I just felt like I was around, um, you know, a tight, a very tight family. Um, and every Duke player would tell you that that's the one thing. And I, and I, I don't know, I'm not comparing it to any other schools cause I don't know. I only sure. played for Duke, but I wouldn't, you know, replace that family kind of bondage, the brotherhood that Duke has. Tell me one thing you remember coach K telling you maybe in game or practice about basketball specifically. I don't know. Maybe he yelled at you <laughs> cause he did yell. <laughs> uh, what do you remember? You know, there's a lot. There's a, <laughs> there's, there's a lot with, uh, you know, Coach K comes from uh, an army background, West oh, yeah. Point. My, my coach in Brixton, uh, Jimmy Rogers, came from an army background. Coach Mantegna, Blair Academy family comes from an army background. The similarities are there. So for me, by the time I got to Coach K, there's nothing he could say that would really hurt my feelings. Uh, and Coach K did say a lot. And he has a way of motivating, you know, people. And I think every time that I was down, he found a way to get you alone, to convince you that he loves you. Uh, but 
it's tough love. You know, it's tough love, but it prepares you. It prepares you. And if you're not ready for that, uh, for me, I always felt like it was the perfect match because I came from that similar background, whether it's my parents, my coaches, everyone in my life. Uh, I never uh, allowed them to pamper me or to be nice to me. I've always wanted, you know, people to be honest and tough for me because I could take it. But I also knew that when when you tell me something, I, I'm not going to let you down. Uh, so it worked out well. Yeah, it certainly did. Uh, Bulls number one pick, 2004, seventh overall. You go on to be a two-time All-Star. What was it like uh, coming to Chicago? It's Michael's team. It's I, I used to work in Salt Lake City, Jerry Sloan. I mean, he's an institution in, in basketball. Uh, so you go to Chicago, and before you know it, I mean, you know, all your dreams, short of going back and, and giving back, all your basketball dreams seem to have becoming true right there. Yeah, no, it's a dream come true. I think, uh, you know, going to Chicago at first, I didn't know what to expect. And, you know, quickly realized that it's a sports city. It's a sports town. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, it's a very, very tough sports town. So for us, Bulls were losing before we came in. When I came in, we became known as the Baby Bulls and we started winning. Uh, and in Chicago, once you get that side of love, once they love you, they really stick up for you. And, you know, I went through ups and downs in Chicago, but I always knew that the fans loved me because I've never been booed in a stadium. Uh, I've always been showed love. They always cheered me on. And that always gave me confidence. I've never, ever felt in Chicago that the fans didn't like me. And that speaks to, you know, the way I play, uh, play hard. The, the fans will love you. But also, I was very engaged within the community. Um, I wasn't an individual that making the highlights for the wrong reasons, you know. So I think that connected well with the city. Uh, Chicago is one of those city, a blue collar city, where they respect your background, uh, they respect where you came from, but they will love how you carry yourself and what you put out there. And I think for me, it, it's just a perfect match because I went to a city that, you know, only knew. Uh, how to respect guys that play hard. You could be talented, all all the talent that you want. If you don't play hard in that city, they will let you know, and they would want, and they would want you out of there very quick. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I also thought it was interesting. A year after, you know, you're the number seven overall, number one pick to Chicago. The next year, you create the Luol Deng Foundation, and and then it goes on to be, you know, the academy part of that. So that to me, wow. I mean, you're starting to make big money. And you're starting to feel like you're a star in a big time city, but immediately you make that statement like foundation, you know, I I have other things to do on earth. No, definitely. And I think, you know, for me, I wanted to learn uh, when I created my foundation, uh, it was a way for me to learn. I, I, I knew that there's a lot that come with having a foundation that a lot of people don't understand. You don't just, you know, say I have a foundation and you go out there and do whatever you want. There's rules, laws. Uh, So what I did was not just have a foundation. I wanted the people to see how committed I was. So I worked with uh, UNICEF, UNHCR, World Food Program, 9 million, nothing but net. Any organization you could think of, I just jumped in. They wanted a PSA to, you know, uh, raise uh, a certain amount to get malaria nets. I was front and center. They wanted to take a trip to the refugee camps. Um, I was front and center. 
they wanted someone to go to Washington uh, to speak at the UN. I was there. You know, whatever I am, let me use uh, my popularity to to give back and help. But as I'm doing that, I was learning, you know, how much I can uh, take for my foundation in the future. Later, after, uh, well, not that much later, but the 2012 Olympics Team GB, you mentioned how there was really no successful Team GB in basketball. And then 2012 comes along and, uh, you know, 26 against Spain, 26 against Russia. Uh, I, I believe you said it was the, the greatest accomplishment in your career. Was it something like like playing in the Olympics? Yeah, no, definitely. I think... One, I think people think that because the uh, uh, England or Great Britain, because we hosted in London 2012, that we automatically would go. I remember being told uh, when we got the bid four years or so uh, before the Olympics that you're not going to go automatically, but you have to bring Team GB out of Group C. And I was in the NBA at the time, obviously, and I committed every summer that year i mean when i got to know uh every summer leading up to 2012 i committed to play with the gb team and we went to countries that you know i'm very lucky and fortunate to have the chance to go there but it wasn't the easiest travels or the easiest places to play and we managed to win every group stage until we made it to the olympics and it was a group of guys that i grew up with uh in in london uh, I mean, in the UK, but mostly guys in London that we always dreamt of taking basketball to the highest level it can go to in uh, in, uh, in the UK. And I felt that the Olympics was uh, the highest stage you could get to when it comes to basketball. So making it was amazing. And uh, it filled in a lot of, uh, you know, dreams that we had together. Uh, when we got to the Olympics and we played teams that, for years and years have been ranked as best in the world. Uh, fans didn't realize when we lose by two or overtime or lose by six to those teams that we actually just made that stride from group C, you know, while they were runners up in the last Olympics. So right. fans really, you know, fans didn't really realize how good we were. And I think British basketball didn't realize either because uh, they didn't go do a good job of just keeping everyone together and going, you know, keep on getting better. I think everyone felt that we should have won more games than just one um, um, in the Olympics. Uh, but after every game, I'm just like, okay, we lost to Brazil. <laughs> we, we, we lost this. I mean, I, there's nothing I could say to that. Right. You know what I mean? So uh, I felt pretty good and I was happy to uh, play and experience the Olympics. What do you remember of opening ceremony? I imagine that must have been a culmination of all, you know, never mind basketball. I'm talking about, you know, uh, the, the idea of the world coming together and, and, uh, and for those moments, uh, you know, it, it's, it's all of that. <laughs> Well, definitely. I, I always tell people, uh, even now as president of Basketball Federation in South Sudan, I tell people that uh, uh, as an athlete, anyone in general, but especially athletes, um, it's a special, special moment that no one can take away from you. Um, you know, you have pictures and videos and all that, but I guarantee you, if you ask anyone about the opening ceremony in Olympics, it's a feeling that uh, you cannot explain because at that time, you're not really thinking about winning the gold medal right then. Uh, you, you're, you're literally thinking of being thankful for being here and having the opportunity to 
uh, which a lot of people don't, not only to compete, but to experience it as one of the members in the Olympics. You know, so no matter what, uh, I'll always tell my kids and my grandkids, hopefully, um, you know, 2012, I was there. Uh, there's no one, you know, no one could take that away. So, yeah. No doubt. And, and, and maybe, again, we'll get to that. But we're going to move in now to the current situation. I mean, after, you know, you become the president of the South Sudan Basketball Federation, the Bright Stars, which, which uh, seemed to be a no-brainer. I mean, it almost seemed destined that when the situation presented itself, if it was available, if you're going to rebuild your country into a basketball team power, uh, that that would have to happen that way. Yeah, no, I I, uh, I didn't even know, to be honest. I, I think when I retired, I literally told myself, you know, just relax. Um, take <laughs> you were tired. <laughs> these years. Yeah, I was just, you know, I thought this is going to be, let me figure out what I'm going to get into. Is it coaching? Is it what? Is it business? What What is it? I'm going to figure it out. And then came the opportunity. Um, and with that opportunity came the vision and ideas and dreams. And I started looking, you know, at the possibility of, you know, um, competing in Afrobasket, uh, competing in the World Cup and maybe having a chance to compete in the Olympics. And then all of a sudden, someone who went to the Olympics, you're like, wait, uh, that's in the path. That's possible. Uh, so, you know, I come to ride on it. And then you realize when you get on there, you realize that you're the president of basketball federation of the whole country, not just the national team. So it's a lot, a lot of work to be done uh, to improve basketball as a whole in the country. And it's not easy, but it's uh, it's exciting and it's fun to anything that you do to take it from A to B uh, is a huge step. And I think that you know, it's something that we're always going to look back eventually at where basketball is going to be, but we, we're definitely making the right strides. For sure. It's not X's and O's now. I mean, even though you have co- you will, you've coached the team uh, more recently, but uh, you're, you're, you're trying to find courts, you're trying to find supplies, you're trying to find uh, coaches and, and lower level, you're trying to build from the, from the ground up, right? Yeah. And, you know, I tell people this, I, uh, I don't always like to talk about what we've done uh, in, in a way of where it comes off as arrogant because I'm not really that at all. Uh, but I'll tell people that in three years, we went 11 and one for the World Cup, which is the best record by any African team uh, with the first team ever uh, to make it to the World Cup in their first try. Right. And no one just comes and says, I'm going to try for the World Cup and they happen to make it. We're the first team in the history of basketball to make the World Cup, I believe, without an indoor court. Um, in That's crazy. Country. That's crazy. Maybe and, and maybe a couple outdoor courts that we're trying to build more. Uh, we're probably the first team that uh, make the Olympics with maybe seven or eight members in their staff uh, as an office um, and the first team to make it without having an office. Uh, we just work in, <laughs> you know, so there's a lot that I could say to it that, you know, it speaks a lot about our players, about our talent, uh, about our coaches, about how hard the people in our office worked. Uh, but it's also exciting because it allows us to show the potential of South Sudan because that's a lot of things that South Sudan went through as a country, uh, as a nation, and they are not being given a chance uh, because 
we are being compared to every other country that had their opportunity. And I always tell people this, if you take any African country, and I mean any African country, and you divide it into two, you divide it into half, and the capital is on one side, and the other side, nothing was ever done to it. You know, you'll be starting from scratch. Even till today, I could name you a bunch of countries that are well-known. If they were to split into half, it would show you that the majority of the wealth and the focus and everything is in certain cities. Uh, that's South Sudan in a nutshell. Every, the whole focus was in the North. Uh, nothing was ever, you know, developed or anything done in the South. And that's why we are pure. In a way, maybe we are thankful for it. But at the same time, just like our basketball team, us crying out to the world that, you know, we're a young nation that's willing to to skip a lot of hurdles, especially with the way technology is and the way the world is moving today to catch up with the rest of the world in a shorter time than other countries have done in the past. World Cup starts soon. Uh, bright stars. What, what kind of basketball do you guys play? How do you want to win? What's the style? We play hard. We really play hard. We believe in each other. We play as a team. We know that the World Cup is not going to be easy. It's our first one. But we know that uh, we have guys that have been hungry for this and they're going to play hard. There's a lot for us to learn, not only as coaching staff, as the staff members, but the players also. Um, we don't have experienced guys that have been there. It's going to be all of us. It's going to be our first time. Uh, there's a lot of teams that we'll be playing that will, will have a lot of coaches and, you know, staff and players that are returning. And that always helps. That's an advantage. Uh, but for us, you know, we've made it. You know, we want to go out there and compete and then try to win every game that we play just like we have been. But leave it all out there. You have great players, uh, but I'm wondering if you could tell me one of your players' unique stories that maybe symbolizes the Bright Stars' journey. I, I don't want you to, uh, you know, I don't, again, I, I, I understand coaches don't want to single anybody out, but just for the purposes of uh, who, who do you look to uh, as, as a guy who embodies what, what you mean, what it symbolizes? Well, we have a lot of players. You know, we have, you know, uh, guys like our captain, Kwani Kwani, who's everything that we stand for in terms of professionalism, putting the country first, putting his teammates first. This is a guy that, you know, fled as a refugee to Australia, came back and played. But we also have guys like Nuni, Nuni Omut. Uh, and Nuni just won the MVP uh, in Bao Basketball Africa League. Um, and he's such a unique player that for me, I really believe that he's a pro. Uh, he's probably our best uh, scorer. But what's unique about him is uh, Nuni was born uh, outside of South Sudan because of the war, uh, but he's always felt connected to South Sudan. His mother, just like my mother, always preached about the culture and everything. And he committed to us and playing with us and, and not missing tournaments. Um, and he's been able to have an amazing winning record, but he's exactly what we are. We're, we're a bunch of guys who just care about the win uh, because of what it brings to, to the nation. Uh, it's not about uh, basketball. It's, it's about South Sudan. Group B, Serbia, China, Puerto Rico. Right. Mm -hmm. Those are the th that's your group. Yes. Obviously, uh, Serbia goes without saying China, Puerto Rico. I, it's a tough group. They're all tough. There's no there are no easy groups at the World Cup. But uh, overall, who's the favorite? I mean, obviously, we know Spain won it, uh, but there's so much power up and down the world now. 
Favorite is in our group or favorite is in well, the tournament? Uh, group, I would imagine it's Serbia. I could be wrong. <laughs> no, 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 definitely. I think in that group, we're the least favorite. And yep. why I say that to people is it's our first World Cup. Of course. Uh, you have Serbia, who's been there many times and have won it. Uh, you have Puerto Rico, who have so many professional players. And you have China that goes every time. I even played China in the Olympics. Uh, and they're always good and they always play hard. So we try to let our players know as much as we can. But at the same time, you know, from coaching staff to staff to players, we've never been there. So we're coming in as the lowest seed. So uh, we're coming in to play hard and play basketball. But the respect for all these teams is there. Um, you know, I know guys in Puerto Rico, uh, the team, and I know how good they are. Uh, China, the same thing. And, you know, Serbia is, is uh, everybody knows. So, yeah. Well, this is a no-brainer. What would it mean, let's say, you know, you're the top African team at the World Cup and you know in early September that you're going to Paris to the Olympics. I know you don't want to dream. You're a coach. I get that. <laughs> but, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, that's what you're trying to do. You know, honestly, and I'm not just saying this just to say it. Obviously, I know the Olympics. I've been there and I tell my players that it's one of those amazing experiences. I'm trying my hardest um, and so is the coaches and the players to just focus at one game at a time. Uh, and I know it's, it's easy to say this. It's in the back of our mind. Don't get me wrong. But the more you shift your energy and your focus to the team and, and the ta task ahead of you, the better you would do. If you skip, you'll be surprised. Um, I think you never accomplish any dreams by just thinking, you know, it's a red carpet. Uh, you, you don't, you don't, you don't get in shape by thinking that in 12 months, I'm going to be in shape. You actually go to the gym and <laughs> watch what you eat. So for us, uh, we really got to, we got to lock in, we got to lock in and, and not let people pull us away from, you know, and people will sweet talk you. People will say, you know, the Olympics is here, this and that. And then all of a sudden uh, you become the team that disappointed everyone. So our, our, our main mission is really the World Cup. It's so crucial in what you're trying to do, you know, with South Sudan and uh, as the president of the Basketball Federation, but uh, that your success has to mean something to the population, to the kids. Uh, you have to create uh, like good feelings and, and in a country that's desperate for it. So that's another mission, isn't it? Like, and you've probably already seen it just qualifying for the World Cup. You have to have seen some outpouring. No, we've seen it and it's exciting. And it's, uh, you know, it's something that speaks a lot about our people uh, looking for an opportunity to celebrate anything. And it makes me so happy now that all the South Sudanese people, even I just came from South Sudan, that everyone is excited about the World Cup. Uh, we, we, you know, for a long time, we've been a nation where the World Cup is happening or there's football, basketball, whatever it is, the Olympics is happening um, and we're occupied with other things. Uh, now we have a conversations uh, where we're, we're, we're sitting on the same table as all the other 32 teams. And whenever that conversation comes up, no matter where you are in the world and someone says World Cup, South Sudanese jump in and start talking with pride about, you know, their team. We haven't had that. So it's it's uh, it's amazing to see and exciting. That's great. Well, uh, Luol Dang, thank you so much for joining us here on this Olympics.com podcast. It was such a, a pleasure and an honor to to meet you and, and talk about your vision and also talk hoops. It's a blast okay. for me. Thanks so much. 
Well, I appreciate it. And you know, I'm not just saying this, but I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed this interview. I didn't know what it was going to be like, but I, I really, I, I love them. Great questions too. It's something I could talk about all day, honestly. Uh, it's not like just, uh, you know, these questions that, you know, I just set up. You were actually having a conversation with me. So thank you so much for that. Again, thank you so much. It was, uh, it was a blast and best of luck. We'll be following you. You're my new favorite team in the World Cup. Thank you. We'll, we'll do our best to make sure that, uh, you know, uh, everybody believes in uh, what you see in us. So, yeah. Okay. Thank Safe you. travels. Take care. Thank you. See ya. This is the Olympics.com podcast. Podcast. I think you can tell how much I enjoyed that conversation, talking to a man of great character, talking World Cup basketball and just basketball in general makes me very happy. Sergio Scariolo's Spanish national team heads to Jakarta as the defending world champions, playing in Group G with Brazil, Cote d'Ivoire, and Iran. But La Familia goes in kind of in trouble without its starting backcourt. Longtime NBA star, Olympic silver and bronze medalist Ricky Rubio, who was World Cup MVP last time in 2019, is not there with the team this time. You remember our last pod, you may have heard head coach Sergio Scariola go into great detail about the team trying to move on without Rubio. He left the Spanish team to continue to heal and deal with mental health concerns. Also, Lorenzo Brown is out with an injury, so again, the starting backcourt for La Familia not available at the World Cup. The 2023 World Cup will be hosted by Japan, Indonesia, and the Philippines. Here are the numbers for you. 32 of the world's best basketball teams broken up into eight four-team groups, labeled groups A through H. It's round-robin through group play. Then the top two in each group qualify for the Sweet 16. It's the knockout stage. In all seven of the 32 teams at the World Cup will earn quota spots for the Paris 2024 Olympics. You can follow all the latest numbers up to the minute across this platform in our news area. That's it for this episode of the Olympics.com podcast. We certainly thank Luol Dang again for giving us some of his time and his perspective on basketball and life. We are all better for it. You can hit us up at Olympics with any feedback you have. We, of course, love the feedback. Helps us get better. You can also hit me up on my Twitter or X account at TK Sports Tweets. See you next time. For more in-depth and original Olympics-related feature content, search our platforms here on Olympics.com. 